Now let us turn together in our copies of God's Word to the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24. This is the section following upon that portion that we read last week, a beautiful section of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. But now we come to verse 36 to the end of the chapter, this section that frankly deals with missions. Imagine the week before missions conference coming to this passage. It's almost as if it has been planned. So in a certain sense, we start our missions conference a week early as we come to this passage this morning. But before we read this portion of Scripture, will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father and our God, as we open the Word, we are aware that we are in desperate and deep need of the illuminating work of the Spirit of God, and in order that we might as Christians mortify sin, kill sin in our lives, and that our souls may be vivified, that we may have a living relationship with our Savior, it is required that the the Holy Spirit open and keep us and work within us and give to us a sense of the experiential, the realities of these things within our very hearts and within our very souls. And so we plead for that. But also, Heavenly Father, even as we enjoy together worshiping our Savior, we know that there are those just a few hours south of us in Parkland who gather for worship this morning. And yes, they enjoy their God in the midst of sorrow, but their sorrow also is deep. And we pray for the gospel to go forth in that community. And we ask that many would come to know the Lord and that saints who grieve and that others who grieve, who do not yet know thee, that all will be drawn to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may each of us understand the need of our culture for the gospel, for a law and gospel. And may we also understand deeply, Heavenly Father, that eternity is before us all, and we know not when we will enter it. And so help us to be deeply serious about the things of the Lord, joyful, but also always solemn, reverent, in the midst of this fallen world as we look forward to that day that we will enter into our heavenly home. Hear our prayer, bless, Father, the reading and exposition of thy word, and send upon us the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our exalted King. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's word and stand, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 36. This is the Word of God. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? 
They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God. Jesus spoiled the tomb, and in this passage shows his church the call that results from his resurrection from the dead. And though many people in many times have attempted to reinterpret and redefine the mission of the the church, it remains clear in the Holy Scriptures. The mission, it is to preach the gospel and to do all that we can to promote the proclamation of his word in the world and to disciple the nations. And as his resurrection and ascension carries with it the promise of success that he intends for that mission, we are going to look at this passage in light of the mission that he gives to his church to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel. We see these things. First, the resurrection is a call to missions. The resurrection of Jesus is a call to missions. Jesus appears in the midst of his disciples. He shows them proofs, not probabilities, of his resurrection. Many infallible proofs, the book of Acts calls them. They were divine revelations. They were Jesus' self-disclosure. In verses 36 to 43, we see in the beginning that they were frightened when he was in their midst. They thought that he was a spirit. But Jesus instructs them using those familiar words. They touch his resurrection body. He ate in front of them. Acts indeed is right, convincing proofs. Someone has rightly said, a witness who first disbelieved is all the more trustworthy. Well, they disbelieved and now they believe. But even the witnesses from Emmaus Road could not convince them until Jesus was in the midst of these disciples. And then when they saw him, they didn't believe for joy, the text tells us. I was thinking of Genesis 45, when Jacob had lost Joseph and didn't believe that that he was alive when he was told that he was alive. Or in Psalm 126, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them in a dream. Well, it's almost as if they were in a dream. They can't believe this for joy because the resurrected Christ is in their midst. How many of you perhaps have been saved only to ask later, can this be so? Can it really be true that my sins are pardoned? My guilt is removed? My sin has been forgiven? And for the joy of it, you can hardly believe. 
the reality that your sins have been forgiven. Well, these disciples, like the two on the Emmaus Road, need to understand who Jesus is, the meaning of the cross and his resurrection in order to live Christianly and to fulfill the commission that is given to the church to disciple the nations. And so Jesus taught them from the Holy Scriptures. It's the Bible that removes our doubts. No wonder the evil one wants to cast doubt upon the Scriptures. And so just as he did with those on the Emmaus Road, as we saw last week, the text tells us that he turned to the Bible, to the law, to the prophets, to the writings, and he opened their minds that they could understand the truth before them. Christ must enable men to receive him, and we must turn to him for the illumination of the word if we are to understand the truth as it is in Christ. And so the message of resurrection clearly demands the proclamation of his name in the world. For he tells us in verse 46 and 47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The resurrection of Jesus demands that repentance is preached and that remission of sins is proclaimed in his name. Now let me do that now. Let me say to you now, do you, someone here, perhaps lost, undone, you do not know Christ, do you know that your sins can really be pardoned, that your guilt can really be removed, that Jesus who went to a cross and rose from the dead, calls you to himself and in coming to himself to turn from sin and to turn to that life that he promises. I'm preaching what the text commands the minister to preach, repentance and remission in his name that is to be proclaimed. I proclaim that to you now. Come to Jesus, trust in him, and he will pardon your sins. And so when we ask ourselves, what is the mission of the church? It isn't complicated. The apostolic witness is unique because they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, but the existence of the church is traceable to their eyewitness account. And now on the basis of their eyewitness account, we preach and proclaim that Jesus Christ is alive bodily raised from the tomb, and that he has come to save sinners like us from our sins. And so the resurrection is our call to missions. But secondly, in this passage, we see clearly that the Holy Spirit is the power of missions. The Holy Spirit is the power of missions. And so we read in verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, the Holy Spirit has always regenerated his people, even in the Old Testament setting. No one could come to Christ without what Jesus calls the new birth, even anticipating him. He has always done this, but this age is peculiarly the age of witness-bearing, and for this we need a more powerful effusion and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 49, when he says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, 
and he commands them to stay in the city until they are clothed with power from on high. This is a reference to what happens after the ascension of Jesus when he pours the Spirit out on the day of Pentecost and constitutes the church in the New Testament era witnessing church. It points to the bestowal of the Spirit at Pentecost. We have no power except through the Holy Spirit poured out upon us to fulfill the commission that the ascended Christ gives to us. Now my friends, if you read church history, you can see when the church has humbled herself before the Lord, once again drawn upon this power from, from on high, this, this power from Pentecost, the Holy Spirit who indwells the people of God. Oh my, the Lord blesses and we see wonderful things happen. I think, for example, of the ministry of George Whitfield. There's George Whitfield. God raises him up. He preaches, and, and so many people come to know the Lord. England is saved from revolution, undoubtedly, because of the preaching of this great evangelist. You see him at the end of his life. He's exhausted. He's worn out. He's spitting blood from his stomach because he's so sick. He can't stop preaching. He's empowered by the Spirit. He stands in his weakness, and he says, Power, Lord, power. I have nothing of my own power, Lord, until his dying day. The Lord blesses his preaching with converting power. Remarkable and wonderful thing. Let me give you a modern example of the Holy Spirit drawn upon by a church. In London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, as you know, in South London, was the location of the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was like a new Whitfield. God blessed his ministry sovereignly in ways that are almost incalculable. And yet after Spurgeon's death, the Metropolitan Tabernacle began to decline. They got in American pastors who didn't understand Reformed theology, who preached differently than did Spurgeon on these basic matters. And over time, they were taken back into the Baptist Union, out of which Spurgeon had labored to bring them out because of the liberalism in the Baptist Union. Decline, decline, until we come to around 1970, and in that vast auditorium, there are 35 church members. 35 church members. They call Peter Masters as their pastor, unassuming man. A man who loves the Lord, a man after Spurgeon's own heart, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. They call him. What did they do? Did they, uh, did they initiate gimmicks? You know, you can fill churches with gimmicks. Uh, did they have uh, lights and, and, and smoke and all? No, no, nothing like that. He preached the gospel. They formed a prayer meeting and they prayed. They lived godly lives. They witnessed in South London where no one was interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, in that simple puritanic worship service, that huge auditorium, they, they don't have space for everyone who is coming to hear the word of God. Why? Because of the simple means of grace. But let me make something plain. When we speak of using the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer, as the means God has appointed for the growth of his church and the ministry to which we're called, let me make, make this very, very clear. It is not the means of grace. It is dependence upon the Holy Spirit to bless those means of grace. 
Do you understand that? It is dependence upon the Spirit of God because, you see, you can preach mechanically. You can teach Sunday school mechanically. You can pray mechanically. You can go through the motions as a Christian, but that is not dependence upon the Spirit of God. So understanding this is a matter of the heart, of knowing God himself in the closet, by yourself, in prayer, experientially. Let me give you another example. Let's go to Scotland, mid-19th century. W.C. Burns, some of you know him as a great missionary in China, but now he's a young man. He has not yet gone to China, and he begins to preach the gospel. And this young man has given, by God's sovereignty, incredible blessing upon his preaching. He preaches in his father's pulpit, and we are told a deep solemnity came over the vast assembly that was overpowered. The Holy Spirit seemed to come down as a rushing mighty wind and to fill the place. The sanctuary was filled with distressed and inquiring souls. The Spirit in mighty power began to work from that day forward in many places in Scotland. And when McShane came back, he was overseas, he found that this man preaching in his pulpit, the Lord had used him as the instrument to bring powerful revival to his congregation. Such as we in our country have rarely seen, except during the Great Awakening, perhaps. Now tell me, do we not need such power from the Holy Spirit in our churches today, in our lives today, in the preaching of the Word, and in our Sunday school classes, and in our homes, and in our family worship, and in our businesses and lives today? You know, let me just say this as an aside. If you would just read about these things, you would grow so much as a Christian. If you understood these things in the past, you could say, Lord, the same God that did it then can do it now. Do it again. And you would understand why your pastors are encouraging you to pray for revival because it is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone that can take the Word and make it burn within you. And make your spirits burn for Christ and for the gospel. So I ask you, do we rely on the Spirit of God for Christian living and for the work of His church and for mission? If we prayed, really prayed with ardor in our souls that they were aglow with love for Jesus, oh, what would happen? How much of the church activity in America does not have the Spirit of God in it at all, but is just what someone has called fussy activity. McLaren says, the one condition of Christian churches doing their Christian work is that they should be filled with God's Spirit. Do not let us rely on machinery. And he goes on to say, this clothing of the Spirit, which is the only fitness of the church for its witnessing work, is only won by much solitary waiting. It means you have to cut the phones off. You have to get away. You have to close the door. You have to get on your knees. You need to spend time with the sovereign God and come to know Him as your Savior and as your friend. And it's interesting to me in verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city. That word stay literally in the Greek is sit. And sit in the city by which I think it means you need to sit, you need to be still, you need to be with God. 
And of course, he poured out his spirit as he promised at Pentecost. Well, this is what Mary knew and Martha needed to learn. The church needs this today. And our Wednesday prayer meeting has a seat for you in it. Let me tell you something. A church's strength, and I know prayer is happening in many places, and I praise God for it, and I do believe we are more and more a prayerful church, but I want to say that a church's strength may be gauged by her prayerfulness. And the same is true of your Christian life. Nothing works righteousness here. I'm talking about communion with God, your prayerfulness, your time with God, your longing for His courts will be the gauge of your strength. And so the Holy Spirit is required. We've seen then that resurrection is our call to mission, that the Holy Spirit is the church's power for mission. But then thirdly, blessing is the promise of mission. Now we come to verse 50. Uh, Jesus has his disciples there, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Blessing is the promise of mission. All the way back to the patriarchs, we find this blessing. Jacob laid his hands on his grandsons and he blessed them in Genesis 48. In Psalm 139.5, God is said to lay his hand on David in blessing Jesus laid his hands on the children and he blessed them, uh, such as when Aaron lifted up his hands in blessing as the priest of God's people, which is, I think, the large equivalent of laying hands in symbolic fashion. It's not something we receive like this. It's something being placed upon you by proclamation. So Jesus lifts up his hands in blessing. Presumably, the apostles and ministers would have done this with benedictions pronounced at the end of the Pauline epistles, such as we use in our services uh, here today. Jesus' last act of ministry before his ascension, or during it actually, was commending his disciples to the care of God. Benedictions are naming ceremonies. God's name and care are pronounced upon the people of God. And now in the context of mission, can you not see how essential and important this is for us? Jesus is saying, I ascend, but I'm not, I'm not leaving you orphans. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out and God cares about you. And I died and rose for you and his name and character and attributes are behind my call to you to preach repentance and remission of sins to all the nations. So go in this confidence. Now, what did he say when he blessed, when he pronounced benediction? What did he say? Well, the text doesn't tell you, does it? We know it had to have had something to do with the mission to which he was calling his church. And I'm careful about speculation, as you know, but let me speculate. What would be the one benediction that would have rung in their ears with which they would have been constantly familiar and often meditate upon? What would be the one that would have been passed down through redemptive history, that great benediction upon which they would have meditated? Well, it would have been number 624, wouldn't it? 
The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Which as we see it, of course, in Christological context is so beautiful and wonderful. The Lord bless thee because you were cursed. The Lord keep thee because you were lost. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee because you were in darkness. The Lord be gracious to you because you had no mercy. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee because you are under the frown of his wrath. The Lord give thee peace because there is no peace in any other way. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And so that benediction perhaps was the one. You know, in number 627, it adds this significant point. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So the benediction puts the name of God. In other words, the character of God is behind the blessing that is upon them. So he raised his hands in blessing. The hands that bless the children, the hands that raise the dead, the hands that heal blind eyes, the hands that did good, the hands that touched and healed lepers. But remember one thing about those upraised hands. When he raised his hands in his resurrection body and ascends and blesses his church, the hands are nail scarred. Because as they saw those hands raised in blessing, they would know the blessing came from the shed blood of the cross. As his hands were raised in blessing, they would know this is a blessing that cost and cost dearly the father who gave his son, the son who shed his blood on the cross. This blessing cost the son of God, his very blood. So think people of God, every blessing that you have comes from his shed blood. Have you looked upon those nail-scarred prints by faith and mourned only to rejoice that all of your sin and guilt is removed by the shed blood of Jesus? And so blessing is the promise of mission. Can you not see it? Behind it is the atoning work of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead in the name of God. All of these things and more. And so he's saying, Covenant Presbyterian Church, God's name is upon you. Go and serve in the confidence of Christ's benediction and blessing and with rock-ribbed assurance that he is with us in our calling to make the gospel known. Do not be timid. Do not be a lazy church. But let us get the gospel out and never forget the nail-scarred hands. But there's one other thing, and that is this. This is the fourth thing. Ascension assures the success of the mission. Ascension assures the success of the mission. And while he blessed them, he ascended. There in that familiar place on the mount within sight of Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus from the dead, he begins to rise and his hands raised over them as as if he put his hands upon each head and his resurrection body must have begun to look glorified or they saw, as it were, something of the, the glory in, in the midst of, of, of all of, of their need. 
and his majestic glorified body, the apostles must have felt attracted to him, so attracted, and yet at the same time, like little church mice in the corner, what glory they must have thought belongs to our Savior. What majesty, humbled for a season, but humbled no more. And then a cloud, Jesus ascended, and he went bodily into heaven to be our intercessor. And when he went into heaven, what would he have heard? Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. He would have heard that kind of welcome. And we simply must see that in view of what the Scriptures teach elsewhere about the ascension of Christ, as this relates to mission, this is extremely important. Had we time to look at Acts 1, 8 through 11, we have more context, of course. What is the significance of the fact that this same Jesus, whom you see ascend into heaven, will in like manner descend, will return? So what is the significance of the ascension of Christ, especially as it relates to the mission of the church? Well, let me give you just these few things. As he ascends into heaven, having given the promise to his church and blessing upon them and the call to mission, as he ascends into heaven, he claims his mediatorial sovereignty. He sits down having purged our sins. The connection between the ascension and the mission of the church is that this one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted as mediator has arrived in heaven to claim mediatorial sovereignty over the world. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. The Father says to the Son in Psalm 2. So he claims mediatorial sovereignty. But then he also goes to heaven bodily, and there he exercises his mediatorial sovereignty. You see, my people, the ascension shows that Jesus has the right to reign as mediator. Those nail-scarred hands held up in blessing as he ascended into heaven now sway a scepter over this world. He not only can say mediatorial authority belongs to me, he, he is saying, I'm going there and from the throne on high, I am exercising mediatorial authority over the world. And then in sovereignty, he grants gifts to his church, the powerful effusion of the Holy Spirit, office, gifts for service that we are called to exercise for the extension of his kingdom. This the ascended Christ has done. And he intercedes for his own. In sovereignty, he intercedes for those who have yet to come to know him, who have, have been chosen by the Father, for whom he died, and the Spirit of God will call them. And he intercedes for us, for the church, as we, as we in obedience, and then the power of the Spirit, extend, see him through the ministry of the word, extend the kingdom in the world. And then he promises to bring, sovereignly promises when he ascends on high, that he's going to bring the mission to conclusion. 
That ascension brings with it the promise of his return and the judgment and the end of all things and the establishment of the eternal state. In short, congregation, the ascension of Christ gives every reason for getting to work for actually using our gifts. And since every Christian here has the Holy Spirit and is gifted in some way by the ascended Christ, then you need to begin to use those gifts in the context of this local body for the extension of his kingdom and stir up the gift that is in you and repent if you're not doing it. And so one of those gifts that all of us have to varying degrees is the gift of prayer. That's our main calling, the gift of prayer. So let's begin there. Let's pray. Keep your gaze always on the ascended Christ. I've told you this before a long time back maybe. My son, uh, who's in England, was asked by a young lady who was doing a craft with some children. Uh, she wanted to illustrate the ascension. So how would you do this, she asked. He said, oh, here's what you do. You have them trace out their feet and then cut out the feet. And then you cut out a round circle showing clouds and you put the feet on it and then you put it over their beds. And so when they go to bed at night, they'll look up. The last thing they will see is the feet because Jesus ascended. The first thing they will see in the morning, the feet because Jesus ascended. Now that's a great craft, but it's also a great point. Set your affections on Christ. Set your affections above where Christ is sit sitting on the right hand of God. Always keep the ascended Christ by faith in your view. You want to be kept from discouragement? I mean the kind of discouragement that will run you in the ground. Keep your gaze there. You want holiness of life? Keep your gaze there. You want to increase your prayer life? Keep your gaze there. You want to depend upon the Holy Spirit to bless the work? Keep your gaze there. Keep your gaze on the ascended Christ. We do not emphasize the ascension as much as we should. There's one, one theologian in history that I know of who stressed this as he should, and that was John Calvin. That shouldn't surprise you, but it's really true. Are you not carried away by the power of your ascended Lord? The word will succeed. The gospel must succeed. The mission to which he has called us has to succeed because King Jesus assures it and so calls upon us to get on with it in the strength that he as ascended mediator provides. Yes? Yes? Yes. Now, I cannot resist this pleasure. Herman Witsius, um, Dutch Reformed theologian uh, of many years ago, has this most wondrous statement, passionate statement about the ascension of Jesus. And I cannot help but read it to you. It's quoted in Betune, actually, but it's Witsius. He says this, it is important to Christ that he should possess the right which he had procured for himself and that having valiantly and successfully overthrown his enemies, he should be carried in a triumphal chariot amidst the, sh amidst the shrieks of devils 
and the acclamation of angels amidst the amazement of the wicked and the choruses of the faithful make a glorious and joyful entry not into a capital like that of Rome, but into the heavenly Jerusalem and the temple not made with hands, there to enjoy a delightful rest after the long travail of his soul. There also had he to set up his chair as a prophet, that he might instruct his people by his Spirit, who irradiates their minds from above. There he had to appear in the presence of God as priest, and as the high priest to enter within the veil and make intercession for his people. There he was to take possession of the throne of his kingdom, that he might hear the angels around the throne shouting with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, that looking down from his lofty seat he might laugh at the impotent rage of his enemies." and from the impregnable fortress afford the most effectual succor and liberally bestow the richest gifts on his saints. Nor can any one of them fail to regard with most lively interest an inauguration of their king so splendid and a triumph of their champion so magnificent. What can be more delightful for them than to see their Lord who so lately overwhelmed with so many waves of unparalleled trouble and sorrow, even to the very abysses of hell, now shining in the fresh splendor of a spiritual body exalted far above the stormy clouds and dreadful thunders, nay, above the sun himself, S-U-N, and the loftiest of the stars made higher than all heavens, and taking possession of the throne of his father's as his father's equal amidst the congratulations of angels and of spirits of just men made perfect. God has gone up with a shout, Jehovah with a shout of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. Your Savior went to a cross, died, shed his blood to redeem you. Your Savior went into a tomb. Your Savior rose bodily from the dead. Your Savior ascended on high. And there, the royal King Jesus rules, reigns, mediates, and intercedes for you, people of God, and for his church. Well, perhaps I should leave verses 52 and 53 for you. Uh, the result, of course, is worship, joy, and praise. Worship, joy, and praise. But let me say this, people of God, given the fact that our Savior is ascended on high, and has poured out his spirit, don't you think we should be drawing upon his promises more, relying upon his spirit more, living our Christian lives out of the fullness of what it means that he, King Jesus, is ascended on high, depending upon him more for the mission of the church? And my own prayer and desire is that there will be such a work of the spirit of God that we're not just fishing with poles and lines, but that we're dragging the net 
because of so many coming to know the Lord Jesus and being discipled in our midst. Unbelieving friend, what about you? What does this mean to you? Does it mean nothing to you? Or perhaps the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. Verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And so we proclaim him to you. In Acts 5.31, we read, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In other words, if he but wave his royal scepter over you, lost person this morning, he can save you in an instant. And that's my prayer that he will. That gathered here this morning, as the ascended Christ rules and reigns in our midst, as the gospel is heard, that some lost soul, the, the Savior, will take that, that scepter, wave it over you, and redeem and save you by applying his own work to your soul through the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, may he do it. May he do it. And if everyone in this place is saved, I will tell you what Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish Presbyterian, used to say to his flock, if all of you are saved, he said, your heaven would be two heavens to me. Meet me there in heaven, will you? May the Lord bless his word. God's people said, amen.